This is Applying the Bible, part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Fellowship. This season digs into the truth of Genesis 1 through 12, a series we're calling God of the Ages. I planned all week until this morning to preach the entire chapter of Genesis 4 this morning. And so I see some of you laughing and you, <laughs> wishful thinking. No, but, but I, was, I was uncomfortable with it all week. And so I, I don't know if I've ever come into the pulpit with so few words prepared. Uh, when, you, when you cut your sermon in half, you know, that morning, it's kind of different and throw things around and adjust things. And, and, and but here in Genesis 4, we see sin come home. We know this chapter as, as the one that describes the killing of one brother by another. When Cain slays his brother Abel. And over the course of these two Sundays, we're looking at this as, as a sad spiral into a sinful, a sinful society, a sin-soaked society. It's, and that's how chapter 4 plays out, explaining the, the culture that, that flows from Cain and his, his unrepentant, hardened, sinful heart and the celebration of being related to him. I know that we have a disappointment in watching morality erode in our country. And we share an, a, a special disappointment as well in rural America. I don't know if you're aware of this, but most small towns of, of 15,000 and less Christian and non-Christian alike, people that have lived in those towns all of their lives are scratching their heads saying, what is happening to my town? And I've shared with you a little bit, and I keep promising we'll touch more on it, and I think next week's the week, but that ever since the turn of the new millennium, ever since the beginning of the 2000s, statistically, the rural rural Small town America is keeping pace with the inner city when it comes to the slide of morality. Uh, the one chapter that I've read on this in, in a certain book, it was titled, What Happened to Good Old Fashioned Hometown Values? Especially in areas like involvement with illicit sex, like prostitution, child pornography, and such, and in the areas of drug addiction, uh, drug trafficking. Small-town America looks more like the inner city than suburban America does. So that means um, if we are thinking, I'm just so glad for small-town values, I'm so glad I can um, rest assured my kids aren't going to be involved in this or that or, or that I can trust my neighbors different than maybe... If I lived closer to Indianapolis, we're thinking wrongly. And as a church, if we are not approaching the need 
for, for to, to speak into and to love people that are being affected by the moral slide in small town America, if we're thinking, well, at least it's not like Plainfield or Avon, we're wrong. Small town America is looking more like the inner city in, in the moral slide than suburbia. And this is, this is played out statistically um, in our century. Today we see how this has been the case since sin first entered the scene. I was driving with Zachary um, in, uh, through Tennessee uh, the other week. And he looked up on a hillside and he said, what is that? I said, that, Zachary, is kudzu. That is kudzu. Do you know kudzu is known as the vine that ate the south? The vine that ate the south. I don't know if you noticed that, but there's a house under that kudzu. It can, it can spread in the southern United States at a rate of 150,000 acres per year. $6 million annually is spent trying to control it. Power companies spent, spend $1.5 million a year to repair damaged power lines only by kudzu. Up to $500 million is lost per year in forest productivity because of kudzu. But let me read to you what I found interesting about kudzu. It says, originally embraced and recommended that the kudzu plant was introduced to the United States from Japan in 1876 at the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia. Kudzu was introduced to the southeast in 1883 at the New Orleans Exposition as well. The vine was widely marketed in the southeast as an ornamental plant to be used to shade porches. And in, some, and in the first half of the 20th century even, kudzu was distributed as a high-protein content cattle fodder and as a cover plant to prevent soil erosion. That's the cover plant for you. By 1997, the vine was placed on the federal noxious weed list. But it wasn't until 1953 that the United States Department of Agriculture actually removed it from a list of suggested cover plants. It was a suggested cover plant until 1953. Just think about that. You open up the wrong almanac from your grandfather or your great-grandfather, and you might plant a field of kudzu to feed your cows with. And a few years later, your neighbors are going to be wondering where their lawns went or where their farm went. As I said earlier, we're looking at the sad spiral into a sinful society. Sin is like kudzu, right? It was planted long ago into our world and into our hearts. It's been creeping into everything ever since. Today, the sad spiral into a sinful society, we look at Cain, and and next week we'll look at his descendants, and you'll kind of understand the sinful society part of it a little bit more next week. 
But like kudzu being planted in the south, sin, it wasn't just planted. It was valued. It was promoted. That's what we'll see in the spread of Cain's rebellious heart into his descendants. It became his legacy. And sadly, sin is still valued and promoted today. And we're seeing in our post-Christian society, when sin becomes normal or celebrated, the damage becomes exponentially worse. Talking about Genesis 4, Kurt Strassner says, in Genesis 4, Adam's sinful legacy becomes quite obvious when we turn the page. So let's turn the page here to Genesis 4. And we're just, like I said, I, I chopped this off uh, this morning. So we're just covering um, up through a few of the verses here. But it says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. The term Cain here, um, the, the, the celebration that takes part uh, and, and his name specifically um, leads many to believe that, that, that this was a statement of faith, if you will, from, from Eve, that, that Cain's birth was her hope and, and, and that she placed her hope that this is the offspring that is going to crush, you know, that is going to bring the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent as was promised, as we read about in Genesis 3. Interestingly, Abel's name means vapor. And it leads us to wonder if by the time Abel was born, if Eve was had taken more of a, disappointment with life. Maybe Cain was proving already that, that he wasn't the, the, that promised child. But there's enough in the New Testament to take the life of Cain as a warning. Jude warns his readers of, of those who had crept into the church, and he says, woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. The Apostle John warns in 1 John 3, verse 12, we should not be like Cain, he says. And what I want to get across to you this morning is living in a post-Christian society, we must be a, beware of following the example of Cain. We must beware of this, especially in our relationship with God or, or, or in man's relationship with, with his creator, uh, so often that relationship simply boils down to religious rites that they take care of, just religious ceremonies or rituals. But we read about this situation of, of uh, a time to worship God. It says, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, 
It may be that the regard was shown by a dramatic sign which we see tick, which saw took place uh, in the story of Gideon when he brought an offering before the Lord and it was consumed with fire. Uh, we see that in the story of Elijah with the prophets of Baal that God um, shows his approval by consuming the offering with fire. That may be what the regard or no regard um, looked like here. But um, we know that, a- that Abel's uh, presented biblical worship, if you will. And he responded rightly to what God had revealed about himself. And we don't know what instruction took place of Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve regarding worship and whatnot. But we know, we're told the detail that, that Abel brought the firstborn, the, the best of his flock, and, and uh, the, the best of the meat, if you will, the, the fat portions. To bring his firstborn is to disregard the worry of what if there's not another one? What if this is all that this one is going to produce? What if there's not more to come? We're told in Hebrews 11 that Abel's uh, action was an action of faith. He's held up as as doing this in faith. We can assume that Cain's offering was an afterthought, that it was not his best, that it was not in faith. There's nothing about animals being better than vegetables. Ranchers are not better than farmers, that sort of thing here. At least I don't think so. But 1 John 3.12, as I mentioned before, warns us not to be like Cain, meaning his own deeds were evil and his brother Abel's were righteous. And this would contrast their worship as well. And think about it. The attempt to be made, uh, can be made to worship God by an evil person with an evil heart, unsuccessfully worshiping God. Uh, I've mentioned to you before that, that I, I, I truly believe that throughout biblical history, we see a total contrast between biblical worship of God and idolatry. And you've seen an image like this before that I've thrown up there. Um, the, the biblical worship of God, uh, to me, is best symbolized by sacrifice, by laying an offering on the altar, and it's burned up and seems to do no earthly good other than worshiping God and trusting God that he's going to provide whatever it is I just offered him or that he's honored by it that it does, did some eternal good. This is, this is completely different than idolatry, which is treating God like a vending machine. Okay, I do this, you do this for me. Okay, I pay this out, you pay this out. And, and you know, who puts 75 cents into a vending machine when it only costs 50? Right? You got to be careful with that you know, what you're going to put into that vending machine. Don't want to put in too much. That, that's crazy talk. And so in, in a, an idolatrous relationship with even the God of the universe, it becomes I'm going to put in as little as I can and just trust he's responsible to take care of me. We see this 
in the Levitical sacrificial system of an unblemished animal, the best of the flock, the firstborn of the flock, the first fruits of, of, the, of the harvest. And, and this comes from, uh, we see this in our society, though we've lost it a little bit. Our term worship comes from the old English worth-ship. Worth-ship. Our worship is intended to be to say to God, this is what you're worth to me. And I believe that's what was unrighteous. That's what was evil about Cain's offering. It wasn't his best. His, it, wasn't a, it was a right. It wasn't a heartfelt worship of God. I, I, you know, I have been guilty of not teaching enough about biblical giving. Biblical giving to missions, biblical giving to gospel organizations, biblical giving to your church body and things like that. And, and, I, and I feel compelled to that here this morning. Our offering to the Lord should be planned. It should be intentional. It should be given to be used as God directs. It should be in faith. It should be decided ahead of time, first fruits, trusting that God will provide. Okay, and that can look like prayerfully thinking how much when that check comes should I give to the Lord's work? Not giving God what's left over. I read recently from Malachi 3. It's where my devotional took me. Malachi 3, 7 through 10 says this, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no need, until there is no more need. Now, I I personally don't believe that we're commanded to a tithe in in the day and age that we're living. 10% is a great place to start in where we are uh, contributing to the gospel work in this world, all right? But I believe that we should be no less obedient to God in the way that he is leading us and seeking his leading in it than he called for from his children, Israel. Man's way says, man is sovereign over God. God is responsible to me. God's way is to recognize, well, in, in man's way, it means give God what you think is decent and expect God to pour out his blessings into your life. I am sovereign. He is responsible to bless. God's way is that God is sovereign over mankind and we are responsible to him. Let God sovereignly direct you in what you offer to him and obey him and trust that he will take care of the rest with his blessings. See, biblical sacrificial offering calls for trusting and loving the all-wise providing God. 
It calls for prayerful giving, intentional giving. You know, I don't see anything and have no clue on what anybody gives to anything, okay? But statistically, statistically, many of you give more to your cell phone company than you give to the work of the Lord. A lot of you guys have been saying, man, I just can't wait until the Lord wakes you up with a message to preach. Here you have it. Because <laughs> this is not what I was going to preach earlier this week. Beware of religious rights. Walk in obedience, in obedient relationship with God. We see also Cain isn't trusting God and he and he and refuses to take even correction from God personally. And we need to look at this and see for ourselves that we need to beware a hardened heart. We read here in Genesis 4, So Cain was angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, I am so sorry that I hurt your self-esteem. Right? No. Did he hurt his self-esteem? Yes. By not accepting his offering? Yes. Is God all that concerned about that? No. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, you, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now, notice something about God, okay? Just as with Adam, we said that when God walked into the garden after Adam and Eve had sinned, Adam did not hear the sound that Adam heard was not God's belt pulling through his belt loops. Where is that boy? In the same way, Cain does not hear God walk in here and ask, can't you get anything right? God does not call him a lousy good-for-nothing you know, can't you just give an offering the way that you were taught or, 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 or I should just assume that you could do this? God lovingly warns him. It's kind of like a, hey, this is a relationship, buddy. Let's walk together through this. Let's see where, where you need to grow. Let's see where your heart is at here. He describes sin crouching like a vicious hunting animal at Cain's door. Imagine an animal crouching at your door, okay? Imagine like, um, you know, a lion sitting outside your door between you and your car in the morning, all right? Wouldn't you want somebody to warn you, right? Don't you think it'd be the loving thing? Say, hey, there's something about to eat you when you walk out the door. That's the image here that God is trying to warn him about. But Cain doesn't receive God's correction. And and that's an understatement here. Where we read in verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. This term, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, that that can be... um, uh, 
it can describe an argument. It's like the next time that he got upset or the next time an argument happened. Just as a side note here, I want to ponder here for something. Why isn't this looked at as a bad thing happening to a good person? Have you ever asked that, had somebody ask that question? Why did God let Cain kill Abel? Why isn't this episode brought up by somebody that's bad at happening to a good person, especially when God even knew about the possibility that it would happen? I think the answer lies in the fact that it's clear that a sinful heart here is to blame. See, a person that thinks man is sovereign, God is responsible, is going to look at this and say, God, you should have been responsible and stopped this from happening. But a biblical understanding of our relationship with God is God is sovereign and man is responsible. We are responsible for our actions. It's obvious here that this is the action of a sinful heart. But I also think the answer should include the fact that Abel was issued into God's presence when he was killed. Abel is praised in the New Testament for his righteousness and his faith. And God's plan, the godly line of the Messiah, was not hindered through this. In other words, what we often consider tragedy isn't so bad in the light of eternity or in the light of God's ultimate plan for his glory. That's why we don't ask that question here. We see the big picture. From our point in history, and know something that one day innocent blood was going to be spilt on the ground again, but it would bring salvation. The most goodest person that ever walked the earth was going to have the worst thing ever happen to him. And it would further God's plan of bringing the best thing in the world of a relationship to God, with God, for people like us that would have never deserved it. Hebrews 12 talks about this between Abel's blood and Jesus's blood when it says about the coming of Jesus as the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkle, a coming to Jesus as the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, Abel's blood testified to Cain's guilt of sin. Jesus' blood testifies to our opportunity to be forgiven of our sins. But we're talking here that we should beware of the hardened heart. You know, people have eyes, but they cannot see. They're called blind. People have ears, but they cannot hear. They're called deaf. People have tongues, but they have no taste. And they are what you call people that don't like Kelly's cooking. Right? But this blindness, this deafness is a common theme throughout the scriptures. As people choose idolatry rather than biblical worship of God, 
in an unrepentant and hardness of heart. Ezekiel 12 says, son of man, speaking to Ezekiel, this is what God is saying to, to Ezekiel, calling him the son of man. Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who has eyes to see, but see not, who have ears to hear, but hear not, for they are re- a rebellious house. Maybe some of you have, have felt that way this week where it seems like the majority of the country, whichever side they're on, on this debate this week is going, ah, nah, 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 I don't want to hear what you say. Everyone is instilled with a God-shaped void in their heart desiring to serve him. But when they are serving themselves with their stuff and relationships, God might as well be talking to a wall but they're still responsible. They are still responsible. For Cain, God is personally speaking to him. For us as believers, if you know Christ as your savior, the Holy Spirit is indwelling you and he is speaking to you. Where is God speaking to you? Where is he saying that sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, but you must master it. Or that sin is just pulling you further and further downward. It is not going to get better. This is what it does. It's like kudzu. It will consume you. If you know Christ as your Savior, he is speaking to you. Are you ignoring him? full of envy, jealousy, disappointment about your life. God's trying to pull you out of your sad downward spiral. And this is one of the greatest messages to us and to Cain, if he would only have listened to it, in our envy, in our jealousy, in our disappointment. It's not about you. That's basically what God was saying to Cain. It's not about you. It's not about your self-esteem. It's not about your disappointment with this offering and me not accepting it. It's about me. And it's about my glory. And believe God would say, if I love you, I'm going to teach you that life is about me. Guard your heart against envy over stuff which leads to strife. Keep an open heart to the Lord's, God's, what he's saying to you through his word, through his Holy Spirit. We're going to jump here to the end of Genesis 4. I always want to say Galatians, but Genesis 4. The son that would bring the Messiah looked very different from Cain, very different from his descendants, which we will see next week. And and I I think it's going to be, I want you to note something here that I believe that Seth and his descendants were running at the same time as Cain and his descendants. Okay. So even though this pops up at the end of Genesis 4, this will make more sense next week. This is the contrast of the godly line 
that would take place. We read in verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You need to understand that from from Cain and Abel onward, there is a gospel battle going on. And God's enemies and the people that follow him from that time forward are always trying to snuff out the offspring of the woman that would bring the Messiah. And, and you have to wonder if this Cain and Abel's experience of Cain killing Abel was God's enemy's first attempt at this. But you will see this with Pharaoh. You will see this with Sennacherib. This is part of why the Jews, the Jews as a people have always been persecuted. It is God's enemy prior to Christ's coming, God's enemy trying to snuff out the line of the offspring of the woman that would one day crush the head of the serpent. And we see Seth as being that offspring that was going to bring that Messiah. And what are his people marked by but biblical worship? Calling on the name of the Lord. Not saying, okay, Lord, here, is, is this good enough for you? Okay, all right. You know, give me what you got. But instead, leaning on him, trusting him, seeking him. While we'll see next week that Cain's descendants are comforting themselves with their godless society and their brute strength. Seth's descendants are calling on the name of the Lord in worship and in trusting him. And today there's still a great contrast between those who follow Christ, God's Messiah, and those who follow their own way. Cain's descendants and and sadly many of Seth's descendants and well, all but eight people. We will see um, later in Genesis will have developed such a culture on the earth that God can do nothing but destroy it and save Noah and his family. But you know what we're told by Jesus himself? As, in, as the days of Noah were, so also the coming of the Son of Man. So also will the coming of, son of the Son of Man be. As the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. God's enemy has always, always been at work to snuff out the gospel, to snuff out the the coming of the one who is going to make it all right. And, God, and society has always been welling up with sin and with a, a, a spiral downward away from, from what it means to follow Christ and to worship God. And we can be encouraged by the fact that God's plan and God's people 
still move forward and still flourish and still worship him and still find that in our in his right hand blessings forevermore pleasures forevermore this has been applying the bible part of the teaching ministry of harvest fellowship we are a fellowship of followers of christ who seek to make it about him and his gospel mission in our daily lives and if this message has been helpful for you please feel free to subscribe and share applying the bible with a friend